Welcome to the Living Room Podcast. The Living Room is the college ministry at Buckhead Church in Atlanta, Georgia. For more information, you can check out the Living Room ATL on Instagram. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this talk. Yo, Living Room fan, what's up? I'm not really sure where to look at. I think I'm looking right here. All right, so... Um, I'm John. It is a pleasure to be here with y'all. Hopefully under better circumstances one day I'll get a chance to be here in the same room and we'll get a chance to uh, uh, connect with one another that way. But until that day, I'm just going to pretend that you're right here laughing at all my jokes and engaging uh, with me as best as we can. So we're going to do something that I like to do in my church. And whenever we start... um, I want to start off with the Bible because I just want God to be able to have the first word and the last word. So Acts chapter 6, if you're there, uh, you can say amen. If you're not, I don't really know. If you're there or not, I'm just going to read Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1, and we're going to dive right on in. It says this, "Um, in those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews or the uh, Greek Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The 12 summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up the preaching of the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And they're going to go on and list six other names. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly And a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Why don't you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, the fact that you give us um, your insight into the way that our lives are to be run. Father, I pray that you would help us not to feel like we have to figure things out on our own. Help us to listen and investigate what you said. Help us to internalize it so that the good stuff comes out and your glory is proclaimed throughout all the earth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, The church is under attack, right? You've probably heard a bunch of people say that in a bunch of different scenarios. But all that that means is that God has been trying to do something really, really good in and through the church from the creation of the world. And what you see is every time God tries to do something, none of God's plans go unopposed. There's always a threat to what it is that God is trying to do. Now, as you think of terrors or things to fear or attacks to God's plan, if you're anything like me, the first thing that you think of is the attacks from, out, uh, uh, from outside. So we may think of groups like uh, Boko Haram or ISIS or folks like that that are very um, intense in the way that they attack the church. We may even think about things that go on in the U.S. right now where to hold on to things that have been historically Christian or viewed as oppressive and hate speech, all of these things, we know that the church is 
under attack, and we tend to fear that all of these things from the outside are going to come in, and in some way, it's uh, all these uh, attacks are going to throw this lampshade over the light of God's glory that he wants to shine here in the earth, right? So we want to find ourselves in a place where the church thrives. Or there may be some of y'all in here that aren't Christian, and you say, John, I really don't care about the church being under attack, right? There's other things that I care about. I care about the poor kids that are starving, right? I care about in Atlanta, the gentrification that takes place across the street from a billion-dollar stadium. I care about moms that can't provide for their kids. I care about people that are trafficked. I care about all of these things. I'm not really concerned about a bunch of Christians saying, woe is me. And if that's you, I want you to know that we may not be that far apart, right? I care about all of those things too. And when I say the church is under attack, all that I'm trying to get at is that for me is um, shorthand to address all of those same concerns. I believe that God put the church here in the world to be this uh, visual picture of a desired future. So as the church thrives and does what it should do, right, the church is here to evangelize, but and if you look at the history and heritage of what the church has done. The church has built hospitals and universities and all types of things. So when I say that I really want the church to to thrive, it is so that people can uh, realize their eternal destiny with our Lord, but it's also so that uh, those people can experience the goodness of what God wants them to do here. The church is under attack, and we have to make sure uh, that the church is able to thrive and do what God has called them to do here in the world. Now, I say all of that to say this as a little bit of a disclaimer. Um, The church is involved in an intense fight. And the only thing worse than being involved in an intense fight is being involved in an incorrect fight. The only thing worse then fighting your heart out and thinking you've come out victorious is to look up and to realize you fought the wrong person and now you've got to fight somebody else. All that that means is you've wasted all of your strength on the wrong fight. It would be like getting out of a car, changing a flat tire, only to realize the rest of the road that you're on is littered with nails. All you've done is waste energy. And the reason why I bring that up is that when it comes to the church, we tend to think that the greatest problem for the church is what is outside there in the world, right? We find ourselves here in our society right now in a day and age where there's so many external problems that we're trying to face, and we spend so much time on the outside not realizing that the greatest danger is not that the church would be impaled from something outside. It's that the church would implode from something inside. Outward problems tend to blind you and I to inward pitfalls. All that that means is this. Every external problem that the church faces can be solved and resolved. So if every terrorist group was done, 
if all the religious freedoms that we want here were granted and there was times of peace and prosperity, hear this, the church would still be in danger. What you find throughout the history of the world is that whenever there's been these times of great peace, the church has this great platform to proclaim. And one of the things that I want you to know about a platform is a platform is not good or bad. A platform is not a vice or a virtue. A platform is a vehicle. And the most important thing about a vehicle is who's driving and what's being transported. Yeah, you know, I'll put it like this. Um, the way that I learned that I couldn't sing was I was in a kid's choir when I was like eight years old. And as I sang, my best friend at the time, Jamin, held a microphone up to my mouth. As the words came out of my mouth into that mic and it was broadcast, the choir director, Paulette Batts, uh, she just had this face, right? Like somebody just waved a can of spoiled spam right in her face. And she shut things down and said, who was that? I backed away from that mic, and I ain't touched a karaoke mic since. All that microphone did was it was a, plat a platform for what was inside here, and what was inside here was trash. So far from drawing anybody close to me, it turned them away. And I want you to know the church is the same thing. The church in every day and age is a platform that's meant to give a world outside there a picture about Jesus. And the only thing worse than no church in a city is a bad church in a city. Because that bad church in the city is going to export something about Christ that is not true. And far from drawing folks in, it's going to turn them away. So I bring all of that up to say the church is under attack. And I want you to hear this. It's not the externals that you need to be so concerned about. It's something inside how the church relates. So I just want to take time here through this text. I'm not really going to be here in front of y'all long. And I just want to talk about the danger, the pitfall, how it's resolved, and then what God has called you and I to do. So if you would, turn with me, find me in Acts 6. And I just want to set a little bit of the context. In Acts chapter 6, uh, the church is exploding, right? The gospel is exploding. And this is what takes place when you have broken people that are honest about the problems that they have, and they find real solutions to the brokenness that they have on the inside, that gospel spreads. And, that would, and that's what takes place here in the church. The gospel is spreading, and the church finds itself uh, assailed on all sides. Peter and John are thrown in jail. Paul's getting ready to come soon and start dragging folks out of their crib. Uh, yeah, yeah, starting to lock them up, kill them. The church finds itself pressed in. And here we see this, this one thing that causes the church to say, hey, y'all, we've got to shut this all down until we get things squared away. Look, persecution doesn't make them stop on Sundays, right? Trials don't make them stop. People getting locked up doesn't make them stop. People from the outside that want to impale them doesn't make them stop. But there's something that takes place in this church that they say, if we don't get it together, it's going to threaten to undo 
all of what God is trying to been, been do through, uh, from the creation of the world. And look at what takes place here. Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. What we see is this, yo. Simple neglect. Simple, physical, ordinary neglect can lead to major disunity. Acts 6.1, it starts off and says this. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, right? So the church is booming. There arose a complaint, look, by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The 12 summoned the whole council of the disciples and said this, look, the very first thing that causes the whole church to shut things down and say, we've really got to get this right, are ethnic tensions that find themselves that take place in the church. Long story short, here's what takes place. Greek widows that are a part of the church say, hey, wait a minute, we look and we see all the Jewish widows are getting all of their food, but somehow we aren't getting what we need to survive. This is not just a group of people sitting in a church saying they don't play the kind of songs that I like. As widows, they do not have a family. As God starts this church, and I want you all to grasp this, the church is not like a family, right? It's not like you and a bunch of play cousins. The church is a family. The reason why, from the beginning of the Bible, God reveals himself, not just as God, not just as creator, but as a father, is to drive home this point of family, right? It's what differentiates the Christian God from Allah, who's going to reveal himself as a solitary, mighty God. God's going to reveal himself as a father to help you and I know that what he fundamentally wants is relationship. Christ is the son. The spirit is uh, 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 that bond or that love that holds things together. The church is a family. So these Greek widows come in and hear this, y'all. They are literally depending on this church for their very life. So this little act of neglect is a big issue. These Greek widows are crying out, yo, <laughs> Greek lives matter. Help us out. And before we go on, I just want to say this. Look, we talk a whole lot about diversity and how much we want that in the spaces that we're in. But I want you to know diversity is almost always much more desirable when it's an idea. When you actually have it, then what you find out is that apart from thoughtful, intentional, disciplined to think through the needs of the little group, the minority group that may have their voice muted out, diversity is actually a time bomb threatening to blow up this whole thing from the inside. It is a great opportunity, but it's a great threat as well. And I want you to hear this. Look, what threatened to tear this church apart was not terrorists. 
but thoughtlessness. It wasn't overt acts of racism. It was overlooking the basic needs of a smaller group that finds themselves in the church. And I want you to hear this. The diversity that they have here isn't an end goal. We so often make diversity an end goal as if that's something that will legitimize what we do. But unity is this end goal. And notice the way that they try or notice what they do when a complaint is brought up. When they say Greek lives matter, there's an oversight. It's not meant as an indictment. The rest of the disciples don't get offended or defensive. What they say is this, oh, look, there's something standing in the way of our unity. Let's address that. Where neglect takes place, unity or disunity is likely to follow. And they know what's at stake. Hear this. Where God's church is divided, right? There's a lot that goes on in our world right now. Let's talk right now about you and I, the people of God. Where we are divided, the grace of God is minimized. So as Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, what he does is in John chapter 13, he pulls all of his disciples together. And here's where y'all got to know your Bibles in a little bit of context. So he's going to pull them together and he's going to say this, hey, y'all, by this, the whole world's going to know your mind. Look, by the way that you love one another, right? You've got to love one another just as I have loved you. Now, what he says, we all know that. But what's more important is who he says it to. In that group, you've got a guy, Matthew. Matthew is a tax collector. He has made his wealth off the current political uh, rulers being in place. So he is incentivized to keep the economy the way that it is. Matthew would be the type of guy that would watch Fox News. Then he looks over at Simon the Zealot. They don't just call him that because that's his nickname. Zealots at this day and time were people that hated the Romans on top of them, and they felt like the way that they would really be liberated is for them to be overthrown. Simon is the type of guy that would watch CNN. And Jesus says, yo, Matthew, Simon, look, this is how the rest of the world is going to know that you're mine. Not just by the way that you preach, not just by the way that you sing, yo, but by the way that your love one another, when y'all are able to give your lives for one another, regardless of the political or sociological frameworks that y'all have out there, that's when the world's going to know that there's something special. But if y'all don't do that, if the church exists on the same fault lines as everything else, God's glory is going to be minimized, dwarfed here in the world. So the disciples say, yo, I know it seems like something small, but look, you never judge a problem by its 
initial impact. You always judge a problem by its eventual yield. Right? This is like a gas leak in the church. And somebody saying, yo, don't trip. It's just a little bit of gas. A little bit of gas left to seep out can cause a really big bang. So God's saying, yo, we've got to address it now. And so what the whole church does is they stop. A simple neglect can lead to major disunity. But I want you all to hear this. Yo, fighting for unity is a part of everybody's job description. Fighting for unity is a part of your job description regardless of who you are. You can tell the size and scope of a problem uh, by who's involved in the solution. Right now, right, every American citizen, almost everyone, is charged with this vote because there's something important that takes place that requires everybody that's one of us to participate in. It's not just something left to a select few when it comes to the unity in the church that God wants to use as the hope of the world to present a desirable picture of what the rest of the world could be. God's going to say, you're all involved. Look here at chapter 6, verse 2. It says this, the 12 summon the whole company of the disciples. There's two times in the book of Acts that this takes place. Acts 6 and Acts 15. Both of those times have to do with a type of ethnic confusion that can make it seem like God prioritizes a particular type of person above another, and they're going to say, we got to shut that down right now. So what they do is they bring everybody together and they say, yo, it's not right for us to try to do this on our own. Why don't y'all as a church pick seven guys to make sure that this issue doesn't take place? And I just, ah, time won't let me go into all of this, but you read and what you find out is the author of Acts is a guy by the name of Luke. Luke is a doctor, so Luke is real meticulous in how he writes. So what he's going to do is he's going to write all of the names of the guys, not just to show you that he knows their names, but one of the things that you're going to find out is all of the names of the guys, um, they're Greek names. So Luke is saying this church gets it so much that they see, yo, in order for us to really make sure this group is not slighted, we've got to highlight or in some senses, stack the deck in the favor to make sure this type of oversight doesn't take place. It's not just about this group. We just want to make sure that the rest of the world sees, yo, God cares about Greek lives just the same way that God cares about Jewish lives, and the church is going to be the forefront in it. God cares about black lives just the same way that God cares about white lives, and the church is going to be at the forefront of all of that. And I want you all to notice what takes place here. Because there is a lot of talk in our world that goes on about unity, 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 and how we need to achieve that in the church. And what you'll often find is people cheapening it to the point where they say, yo, the way to get unity 
is we've got to talk about unity. And I just want you to know, you never get unity by talking about unity. <laughs> That's to confuse the end goal with the pathway. Do you see what this church does? They say, look, there's something standing in the way of unity, and it is oversight of a very real need and a real concern. So in order to get to unity, we have to cross this bridge of an injustice that's been done. And look, we ain't trying to blame anybody. We're not trying to indict any, 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 anybody. We're just trying to say there is a wrong that needs to be addressed. I say all of that to say in the world that we live in today, everybody's going to talk about the lack of disunity. But as soon as you start to talk about injustice, people feel like you're deviating or like you're turning the conversation to something else. And it's, it's plain as they hear that the first thing that they think of is, I would love to put my arms around you and hug you, but if there is a brick wall of injustice or inattention that's been built up, then the very first thing that we all have to do is take down this brick wall. And what they're going to say is that, look, everybody is involved. It's part of your job description, regardless of if you know what to do or not. It's part of your job description uh, uh, if you have the relationships or the platform or not. Look, it's part of your job description because by virtue of being a Christian, of being brought into the family, you move from consumer to family member. And here's how I'm going to break this down. People that are consumers are concerned primarily with what they do or what they don't want to do. When you're a part of a family, uh, the who is more important than the what. It's like this. Uh, if a kid throws up on the floor, I don't particularly like cleaning up throw up, so I'm not going to get involved. If my kid throws up on the floor, well, now what I do comes second to who I owe that act to. She's my kid. I've got to. The who leads the way in what I do, right? I don't know all the words to the Moana songs. I don't know all the words to the Little Mermaid because I particularly enjoy watching movies about entitled preteen princesses. I know all of the words because I got a three-year-old daughter that loves it and the who shapes what I do. And so what Peter's going to say for this church is, Yo, the who shapes what you do. Minor neglect can lead to major disunity. So fighting for unity is part of everybody's job description. You know, just check this. Go back into history. The civil rights movement, listen, was a diverse movement, not because you had a bunch of people who had diversity at the top of the list. The civil rights movement 
was a diverse movement fueled largely by the church and prayer because you had a diverse group of people who all felt that they were family and they shared a common concern. And where you get that, yo, unity is going to be an amazing byproduct. But I want you to hear the heart behind all of that. That's really good advice that we can go and try to do with all of our might, but we'll find that as we go down that path, we tend to lose steam. We know what our behaviors are, uh, but sometimes our behaviors, the things that we do, run out of gas. Where does the fuel come from? I think our fuel comes from the same place the disciples' fuels came from. They didn't just uh, wake up one day and know what to do, but when this stuff took place, I believe that they looked back and thought about their Savior, Jesus Christ, who looks at humanity, God's children, God's family. And in the opening scenes of the Bible, do you know what we see? We see God's family attacked from the outside. We see the enemy of the purposes of God make God's people think there's some good to be found outside of them and they're attacked that way. But then the very next thing that you see is when God comes to rescue and to make things right, if they would just own up. Do you know what you see on the inside? Adam and Eve in disunity, blaming one another. And that's the pattern throughout the rest of the scripture. Whenever God is trying to bring his people together internally, there's tension. So what will God do? Do you know what God will do? God will look down on those of us that have been oppressed and offended and hurt and crushed by sin. And as God looks down, he, he will find a bunch of people that have been the victims, unfortunately, become the victimizers. That when we get a hold of a little bit of power or advantage or privilege, the selfishness inside of our heart uses it to exert dominance over somebody else. But God in his grace is going to send his son down to earth. He's going to stack the deck in our favor. Jesus Christ is going to come as a man. And as this man, he's not just God's ideal man. He's man's ideal God. He's going to come and live the life that all of us should have lived. Jesus is going to spend his time constantly breaking down all types of barriers, showing that God's family is big and broad and wide. And on the cross, he's going to take the punishment that we des deserved so that he could give us the life that he won by being faithful to God. And he's going to stack the deck in our favor and take care of our needs uncoerced. And I think it's in light of that that the disciples see that's the higher purpose that God has called us to. 
And it doesn't mean that we as Christians are only concerned about seeing people get to heaven. But as long as we're sitting here in this earth, in these natural bodies, we use every bit of the fiber and the strength that God has provided us, not just to talk that unity talk, but to address the things that stand in the way of us actually being the people of God. Look, look here at verse 7. Yeah, I want you to hear this. After the church comes through and says, hey, we just want to make sure that anybody that's a part of our family is taken care of, we just want to make sure that that takes place here. Look at what takes place, 6-7. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Basically, when the church lived as God had called them to live, and there was this diverse unity on the inside, it created this amazing platform, and it exported this sense of hope, so much so that it's going to say at the end that Many priests became obedient to the faith. That's not Christian priests. Basically, in this day and age, the priests of the rest of the world were ostracized. They weren't treated well. And when they looked and saw, yo, this church takes seriously the concern of right, widowed foreign women that we would throw away, they said, I got to get some of that. And I just want you to know, yo, this is where our power is as a church, y'all. This is where our power is as the people of God. So many people don't just stay away from the church because they don't like the church. They stay away from the church because they think that the church doesn't mess with people like them. They stay away from the church because they feel like the church really doesn't have any answers. But what grace that the very issue that our entire world is struggling to come to grips with that nobody has solved. God has determined that the church would only be made up of a group of people that were former enemies. So that as folks looked inside of the church and the church gives priority to the little guys and helps them up and, and brings them up that the rest of the world looks and says, wait a minute. There's something different there that they have. I'm a pastor right now in the West End, not because we had this uh, strategic foresight to plant a church in the West End, but because my best friend from college, Richard Mullen, had a chance to move anywhere in Atlanta that he uh, want, wanted to move. And 10 years ago was like, yo, I want to go to a place that nobody else wants to go to. So him and three other families moved to the West End. Back when on a street of 10 homes, six were vacant. Where drugs and prostitution was out in the open. And they said, yo, we're just going to love the surrounding community and love one another. And slowly what we saw through the years was that people that were far from God said, yo, I've never rocked with Jesus. I've never been a fan of all of that God stuff. But 
there's something about the way y'all love for one another and care for one another that I think that if y'all were to start a church here, we would come and be a part of that church. That's how we, we moved in there to start the church. Here's the good news. Simple neglect can lead to major disunity, but I want you to know that truth works in reverse. Just a little bit of intentionality can lead to major spiritual fruit. One acorn, one. Inside one acorn is not just an oak tree. Inside one acorn is the potential to litter an entire continent with oak trees because that one acorn's planted and it produces an oak tree with more acorns. And as they fall and the wind spreads them, they can produce more oak trees and more oak trees. My main thought is I'm out of here. I'm out of y'all's hair. Don't sell yourself short or don't sell your God short. Unity is a part of your job description. You don't have to cross the chasm of injustice with a long jump. Nobody does that. You just got to take first steps. And the good news is that every step that you take, Jesus has promised to be with you every step of the way. How are you going to use your life, not just to talk about unity, but to demonstrate it in such a way that entire continents are littered with the goodness of God to where people that are used to experiencing the heat of adversity can sit in the shade of the oak trees that God is planting through your faithfulness. All of what you need has been granted to you. Start small, move quickly, and move together. Let's pray. Uh, our Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, it, we thank you for the fact that something as complex as how to address it, racial harmony is seen very clearly in your word. God, help us not to confuse the end goal for the pathway. Would you remind us that while we're here, we, like your son, have a very real task to address the injustices that stand in the way so that people can not just hear about unity, but see, feel, touch, taste. Give us the grace and the courage to move forward. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the message. If you want to stay connected, follow us on Instagram at The Living Room ATL. Remember, TLR fam, we love you, we're for you, and we'll see you next time.